Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Nesson Dorma, your regular, sort of regular, 80s and 90s football chat. This week, I am Lee Calvert. I'm Lee Calvert every week, actually. I don't know why I said it like that. I am Lee Calvert, and this week, we tackle the man, the myth, the haircut that is Glenn Hoddle, or more specifically, his time as manager of England. Helping me cut through the karma-related trouble with this story is a regular contributor and author of When Football Came Home, the story of England in Euro 96. It's Mr. Mike Gibbons. Hello, Mike. Hi, Lee. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm making a return visit after his stellar performance on the Barry versus Motti episode some weeks ago. It's journalist, writer, Twitter legend, and author of the very football, fo- the very funny football cliches book, Mr. Adam Hurry. Good evening, Adam. Hello, guys. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks. Now, just to be clear, we will be touching on France 98 as part of this uh, program, uh, this episode, but this is not our France 98 episode. We'll probably do a full France 98 thing Another time, it'll simply be about Hoddles and England's part in it. So that'll be dealt with mm. separately. Thank you to everybody who listens and everybody who's... The numbers are going up after with our little splash on the Guardian Sport. Thanks very much. I hope you're enjoying it. You can get in touch with us at Pod on Twitter. You can find us on our website, nessandormapod.com, where you can find the mailing list and email addresses and all that kind of stuff. If people want to get hold of you, Mike, on Twitter or anything else, how do they do that? Uh, at Mike W. Gibbons. Okie doke. And obviously your book is available through all good record stores. It is indeed, yeah. No abuse via Twitter, though. I'm not so... Good luck with that. Uh, Adam, yeah. um, how do people get hold of you on Twitter? I'm at Football Clichés. 
And uh, again, you can buy my book by the same name, actually, still, funnily enough. <laughs> just ignore all the references from four years ago, and it's still a good book, I think. <laughs> yes, I've, I've heard that rumour, yeah. So then, <laughs> let's um, get on with talking about Glenn Hoddle. We'll also do, have a journeyman of the week later on as well, for those of you who are used to listening to that, um, which is a, a bit of a, was it, would you call it a deluxe journeyman that we're going to talk about today? Would, would that really class as that? He has to, doesn't he? Yeah, he's on the way. But it, it, um he he ticks one box of having you know geographical diversity, but um, perhaps some of the other boxes are quite lacking. I don't know what Mike thinks. Yeah, it's a journey in terms of air miles, really. I mean, yeah. it's just played absolutely everywhere. So hold now, that thought. We'll hold yeah. that. So hey, we're leave, leaving people hanging now. You can be guessing who it is. <laughs> so a deluxe journeyman in terms of air miles. See if you guess right when we come back to talk about it later on. So let's talk about Glenn Hoddle then, mm-hmm. or specifically his time as England manager, Mike. When we talked about Euro 96 and you were on with us for that episode a few weeks ago, we sort of yeah. touched on Glenn Hoddle taking over England. Do you want to remind everybody what the kind of situation was as he came in after England's tragic, well, tragic yet glorious in some ways uh, exit from Euro 96? So what was going on? Yeah, well, Terry Venables, um, it had already been sorted before, before Euro 96 that he was going to leave his position. They'd sorted that out in January of 1996. Um, they wouldn't offer him a new contract, basically, until he'd played some competitive games. Uh, Venables then dropped the line, uh, I don't do auditions, <laughs> and uh, and decided to walk away from it. Uh, so they appointed Hoddle in May 1996, uh, 38 years old. Well, very, very young to get the England job. He'd yeah, I, think, had... I didn't realise how young he was at the time, because I was young myself, so you don't tend to notice, but he was very young, very young to get the England job. No, and he was, he was still playing as late as 94, 95 as well. So he'd only had the kind of one season as a, a full-time manager. He did the famous Superman tracksuit strip, didn't he, in that, in that, in that <laughs> FA Cup final against United? When they, were, when they were so yeah. many goals down, he went, right, I'm taking my tracksuit off. Like a dad's joining in in a kid's game. We sort this out. <laughs> didn't sort it out. Yeah. yeah, and I think one of the things the FA wanted to do is to, I mean, Venables, he came with a lot of baggage. And I think by going for Hodder, we, it was quite squeaky clean image by then. Uh, you know, they thought, well, you know, it's a move away from Venables, you know, and it's, it's a safe pair of hands kind of thing. I mean, obviously, we know now it didn't, didn't quite work out like that with Hoddle, um, uh, particularly at the end. But uh, it was a bit of a baptism of fire for him as well, because his first game, which was the Moldova game, which was the World Cup qualifier, I think it was nine weeks after Euro 96. Mm. So he was literally straight into the, you know, he didn't have a friendly to ease him in or anything like that. So, uh, but then he was inheriting, you know, an England team that played reasonably well at Euro '96, and you still had all the euphoria, uh, the afterglow of that tournament around the country as well. So it was a quite an exciting time to be taken over. That's right. There was yeah. a, uh, there was a uh, slightly curious uh, aspect to when he took over, and which is actually probably more to do with the curious way that Venables left, was they actually had a joint press conference. Um, I read I read in research for this. They had this kind of joint press conference, which was designed to kind of demonstrate how, how smooth the transition would be. Mm. So Venables and Hodder were sort of sat next to each other, talking about, you know, how things were going to go. And, and uh, Venables, by this point, was kind of sort of, you know, ruefully smiling about the whole situation and then and yeah then Hoddle took over so it was really odd start and um uh going into that Moldova game uh, because it was so soon after Euro 96 and the euphoria of Euro 96 was so you know still so high 
he basically he didn't change very much. The first squad that he had was basically Venable's squad. He didn't he he barely changed anything. He he brought Letitia back in from the cold, and uh, um, obviously you know Beckham was Beckham was starting his England journey, but there wasn't much different to to what Venables had left. Mm. And you made a point, Mike, didn't you, before that point about the joint before we went to the Moldova and the squads. The point about the Moldova, uh, the joint press conference. Hadn't Venables insisted that Hoddle stop turning up to England training before he took the jog or, or something like that? Yeah, I mean, their relationship was a lot frostier than that um, press conference made it look, I think. Uh, Hoddle asked if he could come to some training sessions before and during Euro 96. So I think Venables, he let him have a couple, but then uh, Venables was worried that the players would be getting distracted thinking about, you know, the World Cup qualifiers and things beyond Euro 96. Uh, but Hoddle was still quite insistent that he he would be there. I mean, Hoddle was actually employed by the FA at this point as well. So for June 1996, yeah. England were actually paying two managers. Now that's right. that's how well things are handled at the FA. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> but Venables had to put his foot down in the end and just say, well, look, you've got to stop hanging around, basically. So Hoddle shuffled <laughs> off to ITV to do uh, commentary. Thank heavens the FA is so much better running 2018, eh? <laughs> oh, small. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, so sorry, Adam. We were talking about the Moldova game. He said he kept the, basically the same squad. He had to go away to Moldova. Who again? This was in my mind, and I could be wrong. Was this the start of the "there are no easy games in international football anymore" period? It seems to be round about the late nineties, early two thousand, when that became a thing that people said a lot. You know, actually, oh Moldova, we should batter them. But no, it was it was that sort. Of, well, you know, everyone's better organised now, and all that kind of stuff. It feels like that was about that time. Well, based on based on what um, I remember of the game and, and sort of looking back on it on YouTube now, it was definitely right at the tail end of, of the whole sort of tricky trip to Eastern Europe uh, kind of scenario. Um, Moldova, obviously, I mean, they weren't great, but they they they'd done Wales over uh, maybe two years before at home, and uh, so that woke people up to what they could do and. Um, so it, it was it was a fairly awkward way to start. And looking back at it now, it, it, it looks like a you know a pretty ramshackle kind of stadium. It was it was a very uncomfortable place to play football. The pitch was terrible. And um so I mean there were a couple of sort of hoddly touches that he put in, onto what was essentially Venables' squad. So Beckham obviously played, uh Shearer was his new captain and um Barnby started that game, didn't he, as well? Barnby played under every England manager. I think we yeah. this, this is mentioned in every uh, episode of this podcast. Nick Barnby is basically the cornerstone of, of this, Nick Barnby. Might as well be the title of this of this podcast because, of course, Nick Barnby is the is the pub quiz question because he 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 played, scored, and I don't know, died under every England manager, as far as I understand. <laughs> so they won that one three nil. So he avoided that banana skin, Mike, as you referred to it as. It was uh, yeah. it, it, they went over there. He won three nil. Shearer scored throughout this entire qualifying campaign. Shearer scored. Quite a lot. Of, was it five goals Shearer scored? Yeah, he scored five and Sheringham scored three. So it's pretty pretty solid scoring record, really, yeah. for the whole of the qualifying. Then went on to beat Poland at home. And then then came the loss to Italy. No, sorry, then they beat Georgia, 2-0. Yeah. And then came the loss to Italy at Wembley when Zola scored. I seem to remember Zola running between the two. He was playing with a three at the back, wasn't he? Hoddle. Played it three at the back, yeah. I mean, he's quite unlucky that um, he lost Gascoigne to injury before the game. Uh, I think Seaman went out injured as well. I think in, right in the lead-up to the game, I think maybe the day before, and they had to play Ian Walker in goal instead. Should have. Uh, the, 
the big surprise that they were meant to unleash on the Italians was playing Matt Letizia. And the Italians weren't meant to know this until an hour before the game when the teams got put in. But the news got leaked um, somehow. It found its way to Carl Letizia, Matt Letizia's brother, who then did an interview with Guernsey Radio. And then, <laughs> so the, this is two days before the game. And then the... Um, that's that's you know, the, the 1997 team. version of Twitter, yeah. is it? Guernsey Radio, basically. You, is, is Carl Hoddle like the Wayne Lineker of, the situ- of this scenario? Just so, who, is, who is Carl yeah. Hoddle? It doesn't feel like he should exist. There shouldn't be another huddle. Oh, um, Carl, uh, Carl Letizia, sorry. Did I say huddle? Who's uh, Matt's brother? Oh, really? So oh, he's yeah. called Carl as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm very confused then. Oh, right. How could, yeah. But your point still stands, Adam. How could there be another Letizia and how could there be another huddle? This makes I, no I sense. I definitely can't work out another Letizia. Actually, um, that reminds me, um, Mike was talking about the sort of selection problems for the game. Um, and uh, this reminds me, do you know how Gascoigne got injured? It was in a five-a-side tournament or something. It was. It? it was in the weirdest five-a-side tournament. It was. Um. It was the Amsterdam Sony Mini Disc Sixes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was held. Yeah. It was held on the turf of Amsterdam Arena, on a slightly smaller pitch, but with full-size goals. And it was, I think. It, I think it was seven aside. Uh, no, six aside. Sorry, obviously the sixes. And it was. It was. It was held on a small pitch, but with full-size goals. And the whole thing was an absolute farce. Um, and um, Rangers, Rangers, Liverpool, Ajax, and AC Milan played, and uh, Rangers got absolutely smashed to bits. Liverpool had mixed results, but uh, yeah, Gascoigne turned an ankle, and that's why he missed. Um, that's why he missed England. How did shit year. like this get signed off mid-season <laughs> in 1996? It's unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. I think the uh, the Italy game that was very much where. It was the end of the Venables way of doing things. Mm. And then I think after that, Hoddle said, right, well, we're going to be doing it, it my way now. It was the last uh, competitive start Steve McManaman had under Hoddle. Oh, right. Yeah, so he'd been, and he'd been like one of the big revelations of Euro 96. And then. So who replaced McManaman then? Who was the main guy replaced McManaman? Or was it. A, well, they brought, they brought in David Batty. They kind of really uh, kind of shored up the midfield. They had instant Batty. Thereafter, I think for every qualifier, apart from the the return leg in Italy, because I think Batty was um, he was either injured or suspended. I can't quite remember. But um, yeah, I mean the whole point of well, people thought when Hoddle was uh, going to come in that you know it would be like Venables but more attacking kind of thing. Mm. He's actually quite cautious, you know, playing playing Batty and Ince in the same midfield. So that was the time when he kind of changed. So was that was that would would you classify that as when he put his stamp on sort of? the squad effectively that this is McManaman goes Batty comes in it's a bit more of a cautious structured approach to playing less fluid than under Venables perhaps is that was that what you'd say was, would you say that was the, the chase Hoddle made or was it not as simple as that um, I think so and also I mean the, the games at Wembley uh, particularly the, the Poland game and the Italy they were still being played in this kind of frenzy of you know football's coming home and the whole mm. you know the, the euphoria from that tournament and then you know, you get delivered a short, sharp lesson by Gianfranco Zola, and then it's well, quite literally. Yeah, quite literally. Yeah, and then you know they had to uh, had to wise up after that. So I think when he went to the Tournoi, then I mean we've talked about the Tournoi before on this podcast, mm. but then he made a lot of changes there. You know, he brought in you know Paul Scholes, uh, Ian Wright came back in, uh, and you know they decided to go about it a much different way. I think. 
you made a point before we came on, Adam. You were saying one of the points, uh, and expand on this now by all means about Hoddle was is a difficult man to know. Yeah, well, um, I, again, reading up about his kind of overall record as the England manager. I mean, I, I don't know if people necessarily thought this at the time, but if I was to think about what, how a Glenn Hoddle team would play at any stage of his managerial career, you'd think that they would be quite an attacking, kind of free-flowing mm. side. Um, now, as, as Mike said, and they, 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 he played quite cautiously. And looking at his record, um, out of his 28 games in charge, there were 19 clean sheets. Which is absolutely astonishing, right? Um, and then against against Italy, which was a bit of a kind of slightly patched up team. They had Sol Campbell playing sweeper, and it was actually Sol Campbell who, who eventually sort of had had that crucial touch on the Zola shot that took it past Ian Walker. Um, but other than that, England were, were were defensively really sound. They conceded thirteen goals in his twenty eight games. It was just it was just that those goals tended to come in quite the big games against the big opposition. So I suppose that's quite telling, really. So, um, so Interestingly, yeah, I suppose... is, it, is, is it telling of him or is it telling of the, 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 the twas forever those fragile English psyche in tournament football, I suppose? But the point yeah. about it being difficult to know, I suppose a question, mm. you know, did the players ever know him or did the players like him? Did we ever get any, get any kind of inkling about that? It's quite... Uh, the, the feedback appears to be quite mixed. Um, <laughs> uh um, I think I'm trying to think. I think it might be McManaman who called trading sessions or or England meetups were like a cult, um, which takes kind of the the huddle spiritualism thing to its fullest extent. Um, there is an absolutely exceptional quote from um, Teddy Sheringham in his autobiography, who um, he met Glenn Hoddle when he was 14 playing for Tottenham Schoolboys, and um, and I quote. I used to get to these first team games early so I could watch Hoddle warm up. He was so graceful. The ball would come over and he would catch it on his back, knock it up and volley it back where it came from. Everything he did was so classy. I couldn't wait to watch him play. Then when I met him man to man, he was, oh my God, what a cunt. I can't believe this. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, so that's kind of, that's like the crown jewel of this ongoing theme of, of Hoddle as a, as a manager who simply couldn't accept the players in his uh, in his charge were just not as good as him, mm. and uh, he just he just couldn't get over this kind of weird superiority complex. So the stories of Beckham trying to take set pieces in training, and and Hoddle just saying you're not good enough to do this, you're not you're not good enough to pull that off. And uh, it, so so man management, um, I think it's fair to say his man management was just weird and and bad. Um, whatever else he might have had going for him as a coach. You think it was um, a kind of an assumption that people like that point, the first part of that Sheringham thing, people saw what I could do, therefore mm. they must respect what I am telling them. And it's as simple as that. I don't have to manage anybody because they should just know what I'm saying is right because I'm Glenn Oddle. Well, maybe it's, maybe it's just that, you know, if football came so easily to him and, and, and the things that he did as a player came so naturally to him, he just couldn't fathom why elite English players couldn't do what he could do. He's not on his own there, is he? <laughs> I can't fathom why he <laughs> uh, can't roll the ball along the floor to something the same yeah, colour shirt, exactly. for example. Well, yeah. Maybe it's a perfectly natural thing to, um, to, to go through, but um, probably not suiting a, an international manager. Hmm. Um so yeah, you get you just get the impression that he wasn't really suited to dealing with uh, a squad of elite footballers um, that would eventually let him down. And I suppose because he kept generally winning, that makes it that, that those kind of things, the cracks that those things 
don't get revealed quite as much, do they? Yeah, there's also um, uh, when he was Swindon manager, they had a um, uh, they had a documentary, like a fly on the wall documentary when he was Swindon, when he was Swindon manager, and there was a there was a scene in training where he was doing a shooting drill with John Moncur. And it was um, it was a simple drill of dribbling it around some cones and then firing into what was in, into a that wasn't an empty net but it was um, firing in from sort of about fifteen yards on either foot and uh, John Moncur was sort of hitting it wide keeper was saving it and then Hoddle intermittently would take over dribble around the cones and just bury it into the corner with either foot and then it was Moncur's spirit sapping with every single demonstration of how this should go down and Moncur wasn't a terrible player so um, so yes yeah, you imagine. Uh, training sessions must have been just a thankless situation under Glenn Hoddle. I do wonder why, um, or if, sorry, that uh, his approach to that kind of stuff, Hoddle, has its roots in this perception that he was overlooked by England. He was this mercurial talent and he was never given yeah, a chance. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. Which we should, we should nail for the bullshit that it is, really, because he had 53 caps, Glenn Hoddle. <laughs> he, was, he was England's starting central midfielder at the 1986 World Cup and the 1988 European Championship when he was right at his peak. I mean, not getting a chance is Charlie George when you get an hour and you get taken off by Don Revy and you swear at him on the way off and then you, you, know, <laughs> you never get picked again. That's, um, that's not getting a chance. But, um, there was, um, there was, oh, sorry, sorry. Um, there was a strange um, story that I unearthed in the lead-up to this uh, under Ron Greenwood in the, in the early 80s, around the time of the 82 World Cup. And Hoddle had this habit um, on the training ground, I think it was, of dragging his foot behind him as he walked. And his explanation um, for that was that he was trying to sort of jab his his toes down towards the front of his boot so that when he played, the, you know, he'd have greater control and he'd be able to, you know, get a better touch of the ball. So he was just sort of stab his foot on the floor as he walked. And um, Ron Greenwood interpreted this as a sort of a slightly lazy kind of work shy kind of sort of studenty way of doing things it, this sounds this sounds so far-fetched but i read it in the independent so it must be true and <laughs> um and uh, so so this and so this is appears to be just one of many kind of misinterpretations and misunderstandings that seem to have plagued glenn hoddle's career uh, people just don't get him and never have done there are some players who actually buy in completely to him i mean there's some that are kind of of the sharing mindset robbie fowler's one he's he does a kind of pre-Watershed version of what Sheringham said uh, <laughs> in, in his autobiography. But uh, Paul Merson said um, he's the, well, one of the best coaches he's ever worked with. And the training sessions were brilliant. He did quite innovative things as well. Like he got the players training to the dance music, kind of blaring out on the sidelines on the training pits to kind of help really? improve their rhythm and all this, all this kind of uh, thing. Yeah. So he had to, did, yeah, he, had did some... he pick that up from Wenger, I assume, at Monaco? <laughs> <laughs> well, possibly, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe uh, that filtered through from his days there. I'm not sure, but I suppose it is that difference between coach and manager, isn't it? Which in this country we don't recognize. Well, we've only quite recently started to recognise the manager was the coach. Well, the manager was all powerful, wasn't he? He did everything, yeah. and I think there is something about you can be a brilliant coach and not very good at management. You know, so in a way that that would make some sense to me. Yeah. The other thing I would say, actually, as well, as well as his man management of the squad, his dealings with the media as well were a bit uh, left a bit to be desired. I mean, he would often mislead them about which players were injured, which players weren't. And, he, you know, he pissed off a lot of journalists and newspaper editors, which is fine, you know, when you're winning and you're qualifying for World Cups and you're winning the tournoi and everything's going well. But when it starts going wrong... Uh, they're going to come for you. <laughs> we'll move on to when it starts going wrong a bit later on. So mm. back back to qualifying with France 98 then. 
Um, he's lost to Italy. Uh, we then England then rumble on to win two nil away at Georgia, and then win sorry two nil at home to Georgia and win two nil away in Poland. Again, the point was made by you, Adam. Not conceding a great many goals, going to Poland and winning two nil is pretty, yeah, pretty of, damn good result, you know. Lots of two nils, yeah. Um, my main memory of that Poland away game was that it was broadcast on Channel Five, um, which meant we were treated to uh, Jonathan Pierce version one point naught. And uh, partisan uh, shouty Jonathan Pierce. Yeah, Shearer opened the scoring and then Sheringham kind of wrapped it up late on, and it was it was. Uh, um, Ready, Teddy. Oh God, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All that sort of stuff, and uh, so yeah, Jonathan Pierce letting it all hang out on Channel Five was uh, a really underrated period of uh, football broadcasting. And but yeah, it was uh, Hoddle's early early phase was just peppered with sort of two 0 wins with Shearer and or Sheringham scoring. And um, so it, it was it was fairly unspectacular, uh, which perhaps didn't quite tally with the. With the Euro '96 euphoria, but um, but you know we'll pro- we we would take that England right now. An England team scoring twice in a game, unbelievable. Although they are, as I speak, one 0 up against Italy, so um, things are looking out okay. And also, I think the thing is, we weren't. It's easy to forget now that we weren't that far away from not qualifying in '94 and the disaster that was Euro '92. Mm-hmm. So actually, a kind of comfortable Euro '96 raised expectations, but a comfortable qualification was fine, I suppose. Well, it's um, I mean. If you, in the grand scheme of the last twenty years, that that set of players he had between ninety six and ninety nine, pound for pound, probably the best England squad we've ever we've had in that time. Um, I think it, I think it, it, he had more options and greater strength in depth than the than Ericsson had in the mid two thousands, and it was obviously better than than what Graham Taylor had uh, had at his disposal. So I think yeah, he, there's the set of strikers that Hoddle had to choose from. It's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, Shearer, Sheringham, Ferdinand. Yeah, Fowler. then you've got Fowler. Uh, I mean, uh, Andy Cole. I, I don't think I'm... Yeah, I don't, and I don't think I'm scraping the barrel when I said Dion Dublin was actually a, a decent prospect. Not a prospect, but a decent proposition uh, in sort of 97-98. Uh, he, he narrowly missed out on the World Cup squad to Les Ferdinand because he, he had a bit more pace about him, which is probably a good decision. But there were so many strikers and some fairly creative midfielders as well. Um Merson, um, Merson went to the World Cup in '98, and but he was playing. I think he was playing in the first division at the time, yeah, which I was, think, um, was a bit of a novelty. Yeah. But also, so was Gascoigne. Um, Gascoigne moved to Middlesbrough really late that season from Rangers. Played in the League Cup final, and uh, so he was at Middlesbrough as well. So, um, but yeah, there, there was quality all the way throughout the team. That defence was definitely stronger than than anything we've seen since, just man for man at least, and um, so. It, it was just it was a very good period for the Premier League as well. The Premier League was really starting to blossom, sort of late late nineties, and um, so the, the you know the trickle of foreigners had turned into a kind of torrent, and that was definitely having an impact on the England team in a good way. And um, so so he, he he certainly can't complain about the players he had at his disposal anyway. The defence you mentioned the defence being very good. To remind people who it was, it was it, it was three at the back and two wing backs, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. It was Gary Neville, Gareth Southgate. Yeah, so he, he had Campbell. three at the back. Yeah, so he, he, he played three um three at the back. Um and depending on your depending on your perspective, he was perhaps ahead of his time. Because if you see what they're doing now, we we're, we're all we're all back in love with 
you know, three five two or any variant of it. But he also he also liked to um, play kind of hybrid kind of fullback centre backs on that on the edge of that three. So Gary Neville would play on the edge of the three. Um, Stuart Pearce was actually recalled and played on the left of the three. Um, so he he wanted players who who were savvy in those positions. It wasn't just a case of stick three lumps next to each other at the back and hope that it all worked out. So so there was a football brain working there. And um, if he was to de- uh, deploy that kind of system again in 2018, nobody nobody would be batting an eyelid. And if we had the same quality of player, we'd be, we'd be contenders. Yeah, he had Graham was so on the left as well, didn't he? Mm. I think which mm. um, he was injured. He missed Euro 96. That was um, one of the big outs of that tournament. But also Beckham played right wing back for a lot of those um, oh, right. qualifiers and a lot of those friendlies. Yeah, early on. I think the idea was they wanted to play Anderton there, but Anderton he basically missed two years through injury. Okay. And didn't come back until the um at the eve of the ninety eight World Cup. Which then pushed back him into the middle. Mm. Uh, yeah, when you look at it like that, it's you know, it's kind of really attacking side once you get past the three defenders at the back. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of players in their kind of nominal prime as well. I mean, Shearer, Shearer was right in his sweet spot for England as well. I mean, we all remember his kind of barren spell before Euro 96. But um, after that, he was, he was, he obviously, he'd moved on from the kind of dynamic Shearer. And he was, he was now that Shearer who had a physical presence, but also could still run in behind as well and obviously finish. So we, he got the best of Shearer, I think, as well. So in the qualification, then, so everything leads to. Rome, uh, mm. Italy, and, and the famous nil-nil draw in Rome, which is celebrated as as a kind of defining match for him. Looking back on it, and it is now, yeah, more than twenty years ago. Good God, um, the uh, does it deserve to still be celebrated, Mike, as much as it did? You think? To a point, it does. I think. I mean, because. You have to remember, like when England drew that World Cup qualifying group, to be drawn against Italy, and only one team is guaranteed to go through, and then you have to make doing the playoffs if you come second. That was a really difficult group. So that, that was drawn before Euro '96, so it's before the kind of the, the resurrection, for want of a better word. So it was, a, it was a really, really tough draw. And you've got to think, like through England's history, how often do they go away from home against a team of Italy's stature and claim the result they need? Yeah, you know, very, very rarely, I think. Um, it was tactically, it was a very well thought out game. Uh, Gascoigne played brilliantly, and it was like his last hurrah for England, basically. Uh, I think Italy, they had a man sent off, didn't they? I think um, it was quite late on. Delivio oh, got a second yellow. Division. Yeah, he took out took yeah. out Sol Campbell when they were really quite looking quite desperate. I think. Yeah, but I mean, I think England they had the better chances in the game. Uh, they should have won it really. Mm. Ian Wright hit the post at the end, and then England being England, of course, Italy goes straight up the other end, cross a ball, and uh, Christian Vieri heads it about an inch wide of the post. That was so, that was an incredible thirty seconds of football. Who was um, who was marking Vieri? I couldn't, I can't remember who. What, Vieri went about eighteen feet higher than the guy he was marking to head the ball. He was marking to head the ball. In my mind, I don't know who it is. I can't, I can't I think remember. it was. I think it was Lasso. Was it Lasso? It would, it would. It would be the left fullback. You, but we didn't yeah. have fullbacks. You know what I mean? So it would probably be Lasso, wouldn't it? You have to think. We basically, but... he just, you have to do everything he could to put him off. And <laughs> the area was just using him as like a step ladder. He <laughs> <It> was. <laughs> banged him into the ground like a tent peg, basically, and then uh, 
headed that ball wide. But uh, as worth saying, oh, Paul Lynch was brilliant on the night as well. He had the you know the whole Terry Butcher thing going on. Um, the headband on, didn't he? And, yeah, he cracked oh. his head and you know covered in blood. And I remember Ian. Do you remember Ian Wright in the post-match interviews being very Ian Wright? Basically said, oh, said, oh, oh please, please take me to the World Cup. Please, 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 manager, please, Glenn, take me to the World Cup sort of thing. And But, I mean, there's something, I mean, right, he, he's divisive in many ways, but there is something about, it was, it wasn't, there was no kind of, it wasn't a facade. He was truly full of absolute joy to mm. have been part of mm. that game. And there's something about that that, you know, should we should see more of in football, I suppose. It was just, you know, what it would feel like to be the fan in that moment. You know. Yeah, his attitude towards his attitude towards England has has always been um, genuine and and quite heartwarming. I don't his kind. It's not. I wouldn't classify it as kind of jingoism. He just loves football and just happens to love the England team as well. <laughs> and um, and uh, it, it's quite a long running thing for him because obviously he missed out on the World Cup. I think with a hamstring injury or or something or groin injury or something along those lines. And um, I remember the Argentina game um, when Owen scored. Um, his wonder goal uh, at half time they showed Ian Wright's um, sort of punditry reaction from the gantry as he was watching it and he was going absolutely crazy and 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 that's the same kind of attitude he employs today and I, I remember um, I think it might have been sort of 2014 onwards he used to share a a, a a, a punditry desk with Glenn Hoddle and he still sort of charmingly uh, calls him gaffer even now as if, as if he's still hoping that it will take him to the 1998 World Cup. I'm sure we've all seen the clip of Ian Wright when the former teacher turns up at the old Highbury to say hello to him. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the, one of the best things you've ever... It's the way he stands upright and takes... Ian Wright stands upright and immediately takes his hat off in sort of this respectful pose. As soon as he says, oh, oh, Mr. Pinkin, and takes off, and then he just starts crying, doesn't he? Somebody told me yeah. you was dead. Yeah, he's, he's just he's seems just like a genuinely, lovely bloke. Just, yeah, yeah. You know, and he is irritating on one of them. But yeah, you've got to love him. You really do have to love him, right? Um, so yeah, the, that was a fantastic result. Finished, good point to be made there about finishing top of a group with only one qualifier with, with, with Italy in it and having to go away to Rome and get a result was, you know, great. On we go to France 98. The big thing to say about France 98, I suppose, before we start, was the lack of gas going in the squad yeah now at the time I mean every, we, we knew we had a drink and to, but to be honest that didn't seem that unusual you know we think about the dentist chair and all that in 96 and the way that there was still some of that lad, all the lad coaches hanging around footballers having a drink didn't seem an issue so there was a lot of kind of I remember he didn't get called up to the England squad and Ali McCoy got dropped from the Scotland squad is that right yeah, oh, McCoy didn't go. Yeah, so I think I think it was like a double whammy of people who were a bit of a laugh and we all love not not going yeah. to to it. And who was it who took his place? Was it Rob Lee or somebody? Um, it would have effectively it would have been Paul Merson because I think Paul Merson got his way back in through playing in England B internationals, right? Which they were still which they were still doing back then. Mm. Um, Unlike Chris Sutton, of course. And well, yeah, Chris Sutton refused to play, didn't he? And uh, yeah. I think Matt Letizia scored a hat trick in one, and still was still at yeah, Loft- Loftus Road against Russia. Um, he scored a hat trick past Dimitri Karin's brother. What wow. was the story with? What was the story? Is that interesting? Yes, it is. <laughs> what was? Did Dimitri Karin's brother also wear jogging bottoms? He did, I think. <laughs> um, I can't remember his first name, um, but yeah, it was. It, yeah, they they. I think it was 4-1 against Russia at Loftus Road. And, and then that was generally accepted to be Letitia's, you know, 
winning audition for the World Cup, but unfortunately it didn't work out that way. Like Gascoigne versus Czechoslovakia in 89 at, exactly. at Wembley. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it didn't come off. So actually, let's deal with this for a minute then, the Letizia thing. Why didn't Hoddle, with all of his footballing grandeur and the way he likes to play football, why wasn't he the manager to say, right, it's, I'm putting it all on you now, Matt, because you're my kind of player, Mike? Well, when he got the gig, um, Hoddle, I mean, he called Letizia in like to his first squad and he's been a card carrying fan of his for years. I think he tried to sign him for Chelsea at some point mm. as well. Mm. Um, but I think 96 onwards, you just kind of miss the sweet spot of Letizia really, mm. which I think is, a, I would say is about 92 to 95. The first three years of the, yeah. the Premier yeah. League, where basically Letizia was integral in helping establish the whole thing. Um, but Venables didn't fancy him at all. And, you know, he took a, a couple of looks at him and let him go. And then by the time Hoddle, I think Hoddle was desperate to kind of try and make it work with him. But uh, I mean, he he thought didn't, didn't Letizia start that famous game in Ireland when Combat 18 went apeshit? <laughs> he did, yeah. That was his, that was his meant to his chance, wasn't it? And, of course, he was 10 minutes in and then, you know, the Nazis kicked yeah. off, basically. So it, it, it he, did, he did start the, the home game against Italy um, when yeah, they lost yeah. 1-0. Uh, he didn't play too badly. I watched this. I watched the kind of extended highlights of that quite recently. Um, he didn't play badly. I wouldn't. I mean, it's it, it's gone down in history as his you know his big failed moment for England and that and that which he never recovered from. Uh, he didn't play too badly, but then obviously Italy scored and 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 Hoddle just needed to change it. And I think he brought Ferdinand on um, to go two up top or 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 maybe even three up top. So Letizia had to kind of make way because he was the obvious choice if you want to force an issue in a game. Um, in terms of in terms of whether whether um, it, it turned out to be a bad decision not to take into World Cup, if you take let's say the Argentina game for example, when England were down to ten men and and hanging on, not hanging on, but hanging in there, um, would would you could you imagine Letizia on the on the pitch in the, in 1998, a good four years after he was scoring wonder goals for fun. This was four years later, the, mm. the, and the game had moved on a, a fair bit in those four years for, for the English game anyway. I can't really imagine on the, on the pitch for that, except for the penalty shootout, of course, because <laughs> Mark Crossley wasn't in goal for Argentina, so it's all good. Well, that was the big argument about, about Gascoigne, wasn't it? That, you know, when you are in that situation, bringing Gascoigne on compared to bringing Robert Lee on or something is, <laughs> is something of a, you know, is quite a different proposition, isn't it? But I think, I suppose, looking back now, we don't know what Hoddle knew or do we you know was he because we know subsequently what a mess he's become unfortunately due to his his, his his personal issues i suppose were they were the cracks becoming just too wide at that point uh, as well right yeah I, th- I think they were by then i mean his after euro 96 um gascoigne's career and boys well, his life to an extent as well they were un- unraveling pretty quickly um he was by the time the World Cup kicked off, he was in the Championship. Rangers had basically given up on him, mm. and it was you know Brian Robson uh, that took him in at Middlesbrough. There was a lot going on before the tournament. You know he was caught on camera having a kebab in Soho at three in the morning with Rod Stewart. Um, <laughs> if you read if you read Hoddle's book, actually, the the whole thing's about you know being in the manga in the training camp. Uh, the, the accounts of it's a very candid book, particularly about Gascoigne. And the accounts of him, like how often he was drunk, how much he was drinking, 
it's mm. you can kind of see why he made that decision. And I remember being at the time, well, livid that Gascoigne had been dropped. But, <laughs> yes. but if if you think back now, and if you kind of, well, and with the benefit of hindsight and everything, it was kind of signposted, I think, from from Euro '96 on that because he couldn't complete games anymore either. Even in the Italy yeah. game, I think he got taken off with a few minutes to yeah to go at the end. That, because that it, burst it, of it pace had completely time. gone as well, hadn't it? That sort of little burst of pace he had completely gone by that stage. It had, yeah, and you know Paul Scholes had arrived by this point as well, and um, you know the, the yeah the game had moved on basically. And I was I've said I, this on here before, but I'll say it again. I was in university in Middlesbrough in 1998, yeah. and I used to see the two Pauls out quite often. <laughs> mm. uh, Messrs. Mercer and Gascoigne, and he was in really bad shape. Gascoigne at that, you could see it. Just seeing him on the street, he was in bad shape. Yeah, and I was a student, you know, so I knew what bad shape meant. Like. <laughs> But it was, um, yeah, so Gascoigne didn't go. The squad was selected. Skulls was seen as the guy who replaced the Gascoigne, wasn't he? That was, from memory, he would Skulls. It was seen as the passing of the baton to the new sort of attacking midfielder. Yeah, I mean, everyone expected it was going to be Beckham, but Hoddle actually dropped Beckham for the first mm. game with Tunisia. Mm. Gave him a kind of veiled warning through the media about not being focused on his football uh, that Alex Ferguson really took umbrage with. Uh, to the point then, when it, when England were actually knocked out, uh, Hoddle came back to the ITV studio for I think one of the quarterfinals, and he was in the same studio as Fergie, and uh, they they basically had it out <laughs> in uh, a quite entertaining confrontation. I think it was during the Holland. You can't say that about my player. Only I can say that. Yeah. A few years later, when I decided he's not concentrating on his football enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the Tunisia game was so in England's group in nine, France ninety eight, Romania, Colombia, and Tunisia. But again, personal thing from my point of view, I left university the day that this game was played. I had to listen to it in a van, in a tra- in, on the radio, in a transit van, going down, <laughs> going down from Middlesbrough to Cardiff, which I moved to after I finished uni. And then when I got to Cardiff, we didn't have a telly, and it was still in the days. If anybody, you two are a bit younger than me, I think, but in the days when you couldn't just go and buy a telly for next to nothing like you can now. And I went and rented a telly from Granada Rentals, and it was a portable. <laughs> So I, did, I missed the Romania game, and I ended up watching the, the rest of the games on a portable in my rented, newly rented flat in Cardiff. And yet, it's one of the greatest World Cups I ever remember experiencing, because that's the way these things go, isn't it? So yeah, Scholes uh, and Shearer scoring that England-Tunisia game. I remember Scholes' goal was lovely, wasn't it? Edge of the yeah, box on the turn, yeah. lovely goal. And again, I remember thinking at the time, well, so much for Paul Gascoigne sort of thing, because that's what we've got now, this little ginger thing. I remember also thinking um, Paul Scholes was probably genetically the least appropriate player to have in Marseille in, in kind of... <laughs> in that raging heat. Yeah. That was a brutally late, hot Late day. June. Uh, it, it, it was kind of, yeah, it was like Mexico 86 levels of, of baking heat. and uh, But yeah, lovely goal. And yeah, and Shearer kind of sort of nodded home another one. And, and, and again, one of those sort of... England, England have a very sort of narrow variety of, of performances at World Cups. And uh, this was one of those kind of just, yeah, uh, fairly unspectacular victory over a team that we probably ought to have stuck four or five past, really. Uh, but England very, re- very, very rarely do more than, the, than they need to. And uh, this was a very good example of that. But yeah, I, um, I, I, I had no recollection of Beckham not starting that. So he really he didn't come from nowhere, obviously in the World Cup. But I, I had no idea he didn't start the first game. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, Michael Owen didn't start either. I mean, that was the other 
That was the other factor there. I mean, when uh, was that the not a natu- he's not a natural goal scorer? Quote. Yeah. Was that? Did he, did, did he believe that? It was just just him being no, him with the press that, again. That was another example of Hoddle being misinterpreted and misunderstood. And I'm I'm definitely on his side with this one. It it was just it was a really handy soundbite when it came to Michael Owen. But he, he, his point was simply um, that there was more to Owen's game than simply scoring goals. That was the point he was trying to put across, and and that Owen could contribute more. And Owen did contribute more, especially um, in the Argentina game when England were down to ten because he went to the right wing and did yeah, a shift yeah. there. Yeah. So uh, that was the point he was trying to make it was just that those words got isolated and it it became very much like his quote on Andy Cole who needing five chances to score a goal so it just perhaps Hoddle just spoke too much that's probably what his problem was (laughs) just stop talking yeah and then you that point about about Beckham and Owen didn't start the next game against Romania either did they and it was very much seen as when they finally played Colombia that was when this it was almost like his Hoddle's stubbornness had given way and he had to go, yeah, all right, I'll start Beckham, I'll start Owen now. And it was almost like he had to be, I don't know, he had to just, well, I suppose every manager has to be stubborn, I suppose, unless you're Kevin Keegan, I suppose. But, it's, but you know, it's most of them do, don't they, especially at that level. So I suppose I've got, I don't have much of a problem with him sort of saying, no, this is how I think it should be played. These, And it wasn't like he was picking terrible players in their position or anything, is it? It's not, it wasn't a Graham Taylor scenario where Peter Beardsley himself was running the Everton team in, on his own. And yet we had ridiculous people playing for England. It wasn't that obvious a gaff or anything, was it, to not have them those two starting, right? No, I mean, shout like you know, Sheridan was playing up front with Shearer. That's proven to have worked for England, you know, yeah. on numerous occasions. So, uh, I mean, Hoddle uh, turned to Beckham and Owen as substitutes in the Romania game when England were losing, and they were both involved in the equaliser. Owen very nearly equalised in the last minute. I mean, Owen's case by this point was becoming undeniable it's like he had to start the next game he scored an absolutely horrible goal against Romania didn't he but it was just seen as that's an example of what he can do yeah it's just it is that season the moment thing yeah yeah Uh, which is exactly what he did you know and then Beckham did the same in the next game against uh you know Colombia after being told by Hoddle like you're not good enough to take a free kick like that (laughs) yeah that keeper should never have been beaten by that free kick by the way that Mondragon I don't know It, it was it was a it was a lovely hit um um, Owen's actually, Owen's performance in that Columbia game is is kind of semi forgotten in, in in his World Cup because obviously you had you had the clamouring for him to start so there was that part of the story then of course he kind of then he kind of burst onto the scene supposedly against Argentina um, but in between that um, that uh, the goal against Romania and and the Argentina game um, was his performance against Colombia. Which was he was he absolutely killed them. He absolutely killed them. They were and it, it was a little bit kind of Kanija versus Ben Benjamin Massing at one point. They were they were they were they were chasing after him and they just couldn't catch him. He was he was absolutely electric. Um, so the highlights of that game are just t- you know more and more dominated by Owen just picking up the ball on the left hand side and just running 60, 70 yards with the ball in that kind of Owen-y kind of way, which isn't actually that technically impressive but yet quite thrilling at the same time. And um, he absolutely killed Colombia. Um, I think they had a man sent off. Um, uh, let me double check. But yeah, um, that so that's that. Colombia, no, they didn't. The moment. They a, oh, okay. Just just as it was Bermudez, Bermudez was, to, it, was was yeah. booked. Cerna was booked. Yeah, and, and yeah. Bermudez was booked. completely took him out um, hopelessly on on the break. And um, so that that really should have been the moment um, that we should all remember that Owen was. You know, rubber stamped as being uh, 
England's not so secret weapon. It, it was definitely before Argentina that that was obvious. There was one great run he does uh, down the wing, I think. I can't remember the name of the Colombian defender chasing him, but on the slow motion um, replay of it, I think Trevor Brookin makes the point, oh, his tongue's hanging out. And the defender chasing him was like a greyhound hanging out the window of a car. As it, as it got out the most. I really miss Brooking. I really yeah. miss Brooking. I wish he'd just stop doing his important jobs and come back on the telly. <laughs> just do that lovely voice. Be a lovely yeah. avuncular figure. Just so just so calm in those yes. kind of moments. Yeah, yeah. You need it. Yeah. I mean, Imagine the... him and Peter Drury next to each other. <laughs> The, um, the bittersweet thing about winning that Columbia game was that England appeared to have, at that point, well, we've, we've found the team now that works and that you know might be able to go a long way in this competition. But because they'd lost to Romania, they now went into the hardest you know side of the draw. So Holland are in there, Brazil, France, and obviously Argentina, who uh, you know England went on to play next. I mean, they could who have did, won that group. Who did Romania play in the second round? They... They played Croatia, I think. Right. Yeah. They did play Croatia. Correct. So that wouldn't have been a particularly easy game either, would it? No, I mean, mm. well, they finished third. But they were decent yeah. Croatia that year, weren't yeah. they? Was it Robert Yarny and all that were still in that side? Mm. Mm. I think, I mean, we'll come on to this when we do the France 98 special, I guess, but there were a lot of good teams at France 98. Real, mm. real, real top quality. And... and that's the thing, when you look at this, going on to the Argentina game now, which I suppose we are going to do, um, and there's lots been spoken about it. I suppose the thing from Hoddle's point of view, which is what we're talking about today, like you said, Mike, he'd kind of hit on the team. Fact, his stubbornness had given way, if you want, from one level with Owen. It had given way to the team. And you looked at the team, and I remember thinking at the time, and most people thought, that's the team we don't want. No complaints. Mm. That's all fine. Um, but you look at that um, Argentina team he was coming up against. Carlos, um, I retired from football because the world was ending rower. Remember that one? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Did he come back after year 2000? Or did he just go into a retreat permanently? I've got no idea. You've got, you got to stick to your guns. You yeah, haven't you? Yeah, you've got to admire that about a man, <laughs> I think, yeah. So, but, but I mean, if you look at the team, you've got Zanetti, Vivas, Ayala, Shamot, Almeida, Simeone, Varon, Ortega, who was outstanding throughout the entire yeah. tournament. Um, Claudio Lopez, Batistuta. And, and look at what you've got, you got coming off the bench, like Crespo and Gallardo yeah. coming off the bench. Mm. It's ridiculous. So, I mean, even though we lost as... With 10 men, as, you know, looking back, I mean, I was fuming and wounded at the time, but there's no shame to losing to that team, especially when, unfortunately, you know, your young linchpin in midfield kicked somebody over. Well, he didn't kick somebody over, he kicked somebody who then subsequently fell over. But <laughs> yeah. I think one of the main frustrating things from the night was that, I mean, England went one behind. Uh, I think Batistuta got the penalty, didn't he? Yeah, uh, I mean, I was just, I was so just in awe of Batistuta as a player from you know watching Gazette Football Italia and everything he'd done for Fiorentina. So to be one down after five minutes or whatever, I was thinking, oh, how are we going to get? And then you know, ten minutes later, you're two one up. You've scored the best goal of the tournament, and I think it's after about half an hour, Paul Scholes goes through. And he, he should I have scored. He should he have scored. Oh, it was. Oh my God. Yeah. Um. Actually, one observation about that. That, uh, those early exchanges. I mean, um, you, if you look at Owen's goal in isolation now, it looks like the sort of goal that that scored when the game's unraveling in the second half. And, yeah, and you yeah. know it's end. It was a stuff. bit of a back to some game, wasn't it? Yeah, this was after fifteen minutes, <laughs> uh, and um, I have to kind of constantly remind myself that that's the case because what an absolutely outrageous goal to be scoring after sixteen minutes. And the best thing about that goal, which was probably um, kind of. Um, 
uh, a result of the warning sign from the Columbia game was that when he picked up the ball um, and had run 10 yards, uh, the last Argentina defender, who I think was Chamot, was mm. still on the edge of his own 18-yard box. Yeah, he backed so that, off. Was, that was how terrified they were of, um, of Owen's pace. So, so this defender was standing so far off him and uh, which anything made it easier because Owen just sort of ran towards him and then he didn't know what to do, so he just sidestepped him. It's that thing that and, pace does where he didn't actually have to touch the ball much. He just kind of yeah. kept sort of sh- he kept kind of sort of shimmying behind the ball, didn't he? And went, oh shit, don't know what to do with this sort of thing. It's 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 such a it's such a weird goal for me because it's it's it ticks so many boxes and and obviously English football hasn't. It, our benchmark for technical excellence is low, and of course it's going to go down. It's going to go down as a historically brilliant goal, and it was uh, in the context. And there's been of a it, documentary every, about it afterwards, narrated yeah, by Sean exactly. Bean, foreboding but, music, everything. Yeah, but nothing about it is good, is it? This is the thing. I mean, from a even the first touch te- is a bit crap, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> This is the problem with Owen. He, he never looked slick. He did incredibly good things, but at, but at no point during doing them did he look like a Ballon d'Or winner. Yet still won the Ballon d'Or. It, it, it's it's it, 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 I'm, it's a very troubling goal for me because I know it's a brilliant goal and I've always I always enjoyed Owen, but it it, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't hit me right in my footballing heart. Um, it certainly uh, did at the time. From, as, I remember, jump- as an Englishman. I remember yeah, jumping around in front of my rented 14-inch portable going absolutely bananas. <laughs> I remember actually when we got into the extra time hideousness of it all and everything, I, I, I kept turning over. It was one of those, it's one of the few moments I've had where I just could not, it was just so tense. I could every time Ortega got the ball, I felt like throwing myself out the window or the telly out the window. It was an absolutely brilliant game. It was, it was such a good it, game of football. And then... Um, yeah. And at that point, you were making about Owen doing a shift on the right wing. Wasn't it in that game that they kept switching? Him and Alan Shearer kept switching every five minutes or so Possibly. between up front and on the right. I'm sure they, they did that in that game because he put himself out there. Well, the, that, uh, sticking Owen out to the right wing was the first response to, to going down to 10 men, um, which, which makes perfect sense because Owen would, Owen would just run, run and run. I'm amazed he did he did. Um, all two hours and a penalty, which was an amazing penalty, by the way. Um, and uh, so, I, as far as I know, that was the plan A um, for for, for um, Owen to kind of use his engine down the right and, and Shearer to kind of just to patrol the front line. We should just say as well. I mean that that performance with ten men against that team, mm, yes, I thought indeed, was, yeah. was just absolutely outstanding. I mean Shearer was brilliant. There's a great tackle by Paul Ince on Veron um, in the second half where he, where he dumps him in front of the Argentina bench and they all get up and remonstrate <laughs> with him and Ince just kind of gives them a bit back. And, uh, yeah, the whole, the whole spirit of the thing was just, um, you know, it's kind of like a, a bit like England and Portugal in 2006, I guess. Yeah, just, yeah. But just against a really world-class team. I mean, it, it was from the 45th, 46th minute on, all the way through extra time as well to not you know to not concede against an attack of that quality. And nearly score, of course. Um, well, they did score. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, if Shearer hadn't jammed his elbow in, uh, <laughs> in Rowers' mouth. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's definitely a foul. Uh, oh, it is. Yeah, oh God, it's, yeah. yeah. And Saul but, Campbell uh, went full Forrest Gump, didn't he? And then Ortega was legging it <laughs> up the other end with the other ball. I mean, to be yeah. fair, I mean, I was with him. I think it took the entire country about 30 seconds to realise yeah. what hadn't happened and what was actually about to happen if we didn't sort ourselves out. It should have been our Tardelli. It should have been our Tardelli <laughs> yeah. and it wasn't. 
A little note for uh, Darren Anderson there as well, because Argentina broke really sneakily. Mm. Like they put the ball down and took the free kick quickly. Well, I think <laughs> six England players are in the corner celebrating. Anderson <laughs> just runs back like a lunatic. Yeah, I think eighty yards to get in, like you know, a a goal saving sliding tackle and put it out for a corner. Uh, brilliant so, commitment. Yeah, we all know what happened in the penalty shootout. I don't think we have to mm. go through through that again. David Batty and Paul Ince missing. Paul Ince finally decided to take a penalty after ninety six and it not going very well. Bless him. Um. And and out and out we go again. Though looking, I remember. I mean, my mate. I remember my mate phoned me. I phoned my mate the day after, you know, to to kind of commiserate. And he'd been in the pub back up north. And as soon as Beckham got sent off, he just he, he just walked out. He was so fuming, he left the pub. He couldn't stand to stay in the pub anymore. He just went home because it was so so frustrating. So it was. It's, there's an element of what could have been, but your point is a good one, Adam or Mike, whichever one of you made it. You know, if it, if we'd won this game, who was up next, and then who was up next again? You know, it well, was Hoddle, a hell of a draw, wasn't it? Yeah. Hoddle makes a big deal in his book of why well, Beckham hadn't been sent off. You know, I, I genuinely believe England would have won the World Cup, but you do it what Argentina went on to do. So in the quarterfinal, they lost to the Dutch. The Dutch then lost on penalties to the semi-final in Brazil, and then Brazil were turned over in the final by France. I mean, I don't think England would have got through all those hurdles, even, you know, Beckham hadn't been sent off for, you know, and, and even with Owen in that kind of form, it's just uh, the level of competition was that high in that side of the draw. So that finishes, we all go home, as we do from World Cups, mm. and uh, then the diary comes out. How soon yeah. after did the diary come out? Was it quite soon? It came out in August, so he got it out pretty quickly. <laughs> I think it, it, I think the aim was to get it out in time for the start of the new season. It, it uh, was, I, shall we say, to coin a word, quite candid, wasn't it? It really was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to to write that book while you're still this is Glenn Hoddle's uh, World Cup diary, by the way, for those of you who aren't quite sure what we're talking about. <laughs> I mean, yeah, to write that book while you're still managing that set of players is. Uh, it's extraordinary. It really, um, and there's, there are some just amazing uh, passages in it. And also little nuggets like uh, when uh, Hoddle told them all the, uh, the squad, like who was going to be in, who was going to be out in La Manga, that he decided to have some music on in the room to calm everyone's nerves. And he had Kenny G. <laughs> God, if that was well, me, so you put fucking Kenny G on to tell me I'm not going to a World Cup. I'd be turning the desk this. over and everything. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, the, yeah, the book's extraordinary. I mean, the, the, the big revelations that came out of it really were, you know, about the faith healing and Eileen uh, Drury, which then got Hoddle into conversations about his beliefs, which is what ultimately led to his downfall. Which is the, the famous ableism thing, to kind of a, a phrase we use now, but it was the whole, well, his viewpoint that you know people who are disabled have done something bad in a former life and all that kind of stuff i'm not going to get into that but you know it didn't go down well shall we say um i suppose my question is that all that happened and it was um, amazing it says something about him again that point Adam. it's hard to know him because how yeah how do you get to know somebody who does something like that how does how does a person's mind work because he obviously wasn't short of a few bob was he so it wasn't about the money. There is something about getting your opinion out in print like that and not caring and not having any kind of... It's almost, I don't know, there's, there's a kind of autistic spectrum nature to it, really, in some ways. It's not understanding the way people think about things or 
I don't know. Yeah, I'm riffing I mean, now. I mean, the, the book, uh, the release of the book is is is, is a is a bizarre thing. I mean, you can't imagine that happening today. But in terms of the resultant scandal that happened after that, it seems like a very 2018 thing to have <laughs> happened. Too, you know, yeah. Can you imagine you, now you on Twitter? Wow. Yeah, of course. You, you, you say something out of turn, and then then it, you just you, you go through these subsequent chapters of has to apologise. Is he going to get sacked? Then he's going to go, and then you'll resign anyway. Um, but um, it was. I mean, in, Eileen Drury is uh, obviously a very weird kind of side character to all of this um uh she's basically disappeared off the face of the planet by the way like she released her own book in 1999 about how it about faith healing and how that goes but after that there's not a trace of her mm. and I, I really have to, i'd love to know what she's up to these days but um he um hoddle actually got divorced in 98 uh which i think was before the world cup um and uh, when he left when he left uh, the family home he went and stayed in her spare room in Berkshire. I mean, all so joking that, aside, he was she was obviously a very important figure in his life. And lots of people yeah. have people who are important in their lives and the way they do things, I don't they? I suppose so. Muhammad he Ali had, he, had a guy who was kind of a spiritual guy who walked around with him, didn't he? You know, it's kind of... Yeah. <laughs> he, met her when, he met her when he was 18 and he had a, a, a knee injury. And um, he was going out with her daughter briefly. And um, when that relationship fizzled out, um, he kept um, he kept Eileen on as his kind of confidant and uh, and apparently yeah apparently as a faith healer because she cured his injury um, just by touching him. And uh, so 21 years um, this kind of working relationship went on up until up until sort of 98 99. And uh, yeah, obviously she's become kind of this kind of comedy figure. But I'd I'd love to I'd love to hear what she has to say about it all 20 yeah. 20 years later. It's one of the more inter- it's certainly more interesting than Ericsson and Willie Rylo, isn't it? In terms of a double act, it's, it, 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 I'd want to know more about this one than than the Ericsson one. Um, so that came out. That happened. So he was his stock wasn't great anyway at this point, was it? He then had a pretty poor start to the qualifying campaign for Euro two thousand. Do you think he'd have got the bullet anyway because of that, or is it basically because of everything else? Mike? Well, the start the start of though that Euro qualifying campaign. Really, well, it went Taylor-esque in a way. He lost to Sweden, I think two-one. That's right. Then yeah. nil-nil with Bulgaria at Wembley, and then in the first five minutes when they were away in Luxembourg, England conceded a penalty. Yes. And it, but I, uh, I think the guy just stuck it straight over the bar, and then yeah. England went on, went on to win three-nil. Um, but up until like the, the the opening five minutes of that game, it's like they just an absolute. Ah, oh, crashes all questions like, well, are the players not playing for him now because of you know the revelations in the book and all this kind of stuff? Um, so the whole the whole thing. And there was gone that whole. That. There was a kind of stench around. He's very good at games like Rome. He's very good at ten men versus. But can he can he create? Can his teams create enough against a Bulgaria that wants to defend for ninety minutes? I remember that being part of the conversation back then. And but then again, people start to find all these things when these things start to go wrong, don't they? Yeah, and I think there was a bit of a movement. You know, he, he pissed off a lot of journalists and a lot of press as well um, for like the, the way he'd, you know he'd, he'd handled things, particularly at the World Cup. Uh, so there's just this general air of. Um, well, he'd never paid into the bank, had he? When he had to come and draw something out of the bank, he found mm-hmm. there was fuck all in there because he'd been pissing yeah. all off for so exactly long. Exactly right. But, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly right. Um, uh, I another story which I'd never I'd never heard before. 
um, but again, read in preparation for this pod, was um, after the Luxembourg game, which England won fairly comfortably in the end, 3-0, not spectacular, but... Um, I'm going to use Mark Morrison's a... quote at the time, forget Luxembourg, they're a pub team. <laughs> it may, may, that may well have been the case, but uh, there was a huge controversy after the game because um, he apparently uh, had a, uh, a frank exchange of views in the dressing room with, uh, with his captain, Alan Shearer, after the game. And uh, there was rumours that it had been recorded on, on tape. And uh, Danny Baker uh, had got wind of this uh, and, 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 and declared on his, uh, on his radio show that there was a tape in existence of, of um, a huge confrontation in the England dressing room between Shearer and Hoddle, um, after which Hoddle then storms out and then the England team sort of bitch about him after, after he's left the room. And uh, so Hoddle, Hoddle was, was told about this and he said, OK, if there's a tape, let's hear it and we'll all find out the truth. And um, so this all kind of swirled around um, in the background. And uh, it, it was just, and then everyone got involved. David Mellor got involved. And he said, um, look, if we can produce this tape, we can all listen to it. If not, Danny Baker should put sellotape over his mouth. And uh, the, the best part of this, uh, which really kind of places it into historical context, was that uh, Danny Baker claimed that not only was it on tape, but it had been um, placed onto recordable mini disc as well. <laughs> The beautifully uh, bookender Sony mini disc sixes from the beginning of the episode. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge mini disc fan, so that's why I've I've, I've placed that <laughs> reference in twice. I was a huge mini disc advocate. I'm, de- I'm devastated that it didn't uh, continue. But yeah, that was just a little story about uh, the kind of disintegration of Hoddle's reign that I didn't really know about. And then, of course, um, it was early. I think it was early '99 that, that his 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 comments. Um, his uh, comments about karma and all that sort of stuff came out, and that that eventually led to him him leaving. But not before, um, but not before his daughter, who was thirteen at the time, wrote a letter to CFAX defending him. Amazing! Oh, well, I, I did that. not know that. That's incredible. <laughs> Why would you write it to CFAX? Dear CFAX. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh dear, oh dear. It's just. Um, but yeah, and uh, the Independent. Uh, it was the day after he resi- uh, The day after his departure was sealed, the Independent ran the headline: "Hoddle nil, disabled one, Hoddle OG," which is something oh of a headline. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah. After he'd made his comments as well, Hoddle. Um, I think it, it just shows you a bit where football was at at the time and how far it had gone in maybe the space of like two or three years. Was that Tony Blair commented on it? I can't remember what program he was on, but he said, "I've oh, he's made these comments. He's got to go." You know, Tony Banks, the sports minister, piled in. I mean, yeah. a few years earlier, it was unthinkable. You know, the prime. That was when Tony Blair was filmed doing headers with Kevin Keegan and all that, wasn't it? When it yeah. suddenly became, yeah, uh, as you say, a perfect picture of where football had come, got to from where it had come from. Yeah. Um, so off he went, and then, of course, uh, Kevin Keegan took over, which is a whole other episode and a whole other discussion, but Keegan came yeah. in. But again, it's that yin and yang thing with England managers, isn't it? They went from this kind of door tactician on, if you, to, to, to put him on that level to then, of course, Keegan, this emotional sort of, yeah. like, this nerve ending in a tracksuit, basically, he was so emotional. And then and then after that, of course, we had, again, another tactician sort of doer type character until we found out he shagged everything, of course, Alexon, <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, it's... Um, but the, the weird thing about um, 
um, whether you think Hoddle was a success or a kind of um, uh, the one that got away or whether you thought he was a failure, it could have been a lot worse because before he was hired, England went through a shortlist of Brian Robson, Keegan earlier, Jerry Francis. Um, then the um, returns for Bobby, uh, a return for Bobby Robson was ruled out. Howard Kendall was also ruled out. Man United refused them permission to speak to Ferguson. And it was then that the last two were Glenn Hoddle and Frank Clark. My word. So when you look at it that way, <laughs> imagine all those parallel timelines, <laughs> England under Frank Clark with Jason Lee up front, or I don't know, just, so it could have been a lot worse. I think it's safe to say. I remember a lot I of think... people saying at the time, I remember a piece at the time saying that he was the right coach at the wrong time because he was so young. And, actually, yeah, and that's the weird, that's the yeah. weird thing because then he went away and everyone just assumed he'd go on and have a stellar career because he'd had he'd had a good World Cup he did a couple of rocky patches but then it just he never seemed to get back to where you'd think somebody of his ability could have got back to because that point about how innovative he coach he was and all that kind of stuff it's never it never happened for him afterwards did it? But he'd just do your head in on a day to day basis at a club wouldn't he? Yeah there is that isn't there? Yeah, and if, if you look at what he's done since then as well, I mean, it's not there's no real evidence of any managerial genius in there. I, yeah. I don't think not in not in his club career since uh, since he left the England job. What if Venables had stayed on with that squad? I know it's, I know it's a stupid question to ask, but let's ask it anyway. Could it have been any better? Too, too difficult to know. Well, it'd be interesting to know how he would have done in qualifying. Really, how yeah. he would have approached away games, you, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. How quickly would he have incorporated, you know, the, the Man United youngsters, Michael Owen, um, and you know, and give Hoddle his due for that. I mean, he, he did yeah, put true. Owen in. Well, this is yeah, it's, it's a natural, it's, it's a natural thing for a new manager to bring in, kind of, you know, to bring in fresh blood. So perhaps you could argue that Venables wouldn't have done that because he would have seen Euro '96 as a, as a good bedrock for that particular team and kept it on. So. Um, Hoddle, simply by virtue of being the new manager, kind of had a responsibility to bring in new players. Although um, whether Owen and Beckham really would have been kept out of the picture is is arguable. But um, so I, I think yeah, he comes in the out. You know, in the wash, he comes out quite well. I think in the grand scheme of things, I don't I, I don't think he should think be regarded. Goes, yeah, I think it goes back to the point. He qualified in a very very difficult group. Mm. Um, he and and again, you know, not conceding the goal against you know mm. you can't. You can't legislate for somebody kicking somebody and having to deal with that against a very, very good Argentina team. Mike, That's what's right. your view on it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think Igarji comes out in credit. You know, he, he you know, they, they were really difficult to beat. They, in, they were competitive in games. That's the main thing. I mean, I think you'll see this with England in the summer when they come up against a big team. Like you, in that Argentina game, especially that first half, which was just brilliant. The pace of it was, you know, was right up. That was one of the real tragedies of the sendings off, set the sending off, really, was that if that game had continued in that kind of manner, you know, you might have had one of the greatest World Cup games of all time, I think. But England were a live proposition in that and should have been 3 1 up. And, mm. you know, they were, they were a genuine, genuine foot, uh, contender for that World Cup, I think. And obviously, you know, to be honest, he delivered us a wonderful sort of tragedy to talk about forever and ever, which is really what we want from England managers. We don't really want to win, do we? So. Mm. So that was Glenn Hoddle. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Let us know. Ness and Dorma Pod on Twitter. Let's move on to our journeyman of the week to finish off. Now, we mentioned before the, the deluxe journeyman with locks of air miles. Let's unveil who it is. It is 
the left-footed Brazilian to give him his full title, Denilson de Oliveira Araujo. But his, we all knew him as Denilson. The man of many, 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 many step-overs step yeah. and <laughs> then not doing much with it when he'd finished doing the step-overs, bless him. Who Real Betis paid £21.5 million for. Uh, as he was going to be as he was going to be one of the best players ever, and ended up having a trial for Bolton and playing in Vietnam. <laughs> it's not a bad story, is it? No, I mean, hey, I think he's um, got just going back to the stepovers. I think before Danielson, you'd, you'd seen someone do one or perhaps two, but I'd never seen someone do seven or eight. <laughs> I also don't understand the point of seven or eight step-overs. You do one step-over to make somebody move the way you want them to go. Then you can go the other way. The Chris Waddle one, you know, do it once, then go. Whereas he'd go, boop, 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 boop. But in the end, you just, it loses all its... uh, He was, perhaps he was the kind of the YouTube footballer before YouTube. Um, And he he kind of emerged around the same sort of time that Nike were, were making kind of cinematic... Um, TV adverts. The one in the airport so that, was the famous so, one, wasn't it? Yeah, right? exactly. And, and and if you think about it, he's 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 his defining moment in his career was in a TV advert for Nike. That that's <laughs> I can't. I don't remember. I don't remember a single goal he scored in his entire career. I have to say. And uh, if I don't know something about a '90s footballer, then then uh, then the, we're, he's in real trouble. But he's um, uh, just. I mean. It, it, um, if you take Wikipedia as a good barometer for this sort of thing, because <laughs> Wikipedia is supposed to be written in a kind of matter-of-fact way. It's supposed to be fairly unjudgmental. But early on in his Wikipedia page, it says, Rail Betis believed he would become one of the best footballers in the world. However, as they would find out later, this was a complete misnomer on every conceivable level. <laughs> Did you write that? Matter, right? on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> is, just to give you an idea of the clubs he was at, this is a journeyman thing. He started off at San Paolo for four years, then went to the famous move to Betis, then went to Flamengo on loan, then Bordeaux, Al Nasser, FC Dallas in America, where he played eight appearances, Palmeiras for 30 appearances, Itumbiara, I don't even know where that is, I haven't looked, Haiphong, which was the which was the Vietnamese trip, was, was it Vietnam or Thailand? It was Vietnam, yeah, Vietnam, he played yeah, one so. game. Yeah. Played one game there, and then finished at Nea Kavala, who was like in the sort of northern part of Greece. And played zero games there. Well done. Um, while we're on this, because a lot of people say, where the hell, you know, how did he get Betis? Not a very trendy club, not a very fashionable club. How the hell did they end up paying 21.5 million for somebody like Danielson at the time? Well, he was brought there by, and this is just an excuse for me to go off on a riff about this one, by perhaps the most bonkers and sinister footy suits in history. Uh, Manuel Luis de Lopera, who was known as Don Manway. <laughs> um, he'd saved Betis from going under in 1992 when he was vice president and basically gave them a load of money to, to, to bail them out then managed to convince the fans to vote him in to be president forever in one of, <laughs> a bit like Putin in sort Putin, of North yeah. Korea isn't it? yeah basically he renamed the stadium after himself while he was still alive <laughs> he claimed he claimed publicly that he hated Seville because of the Betis Seville thing he claimed that Seville's stadium was better than Seville's that their stadium was better than Seville's because it has a bigger car park. He made his millions by selling second-hand tellies secured on houses with huge rates of interest and collected by honourable men in dark suits. He used to he pick didn't up... rent one to you, did he? No, oh, yeah, <laughs> God, yeah, was it my portable, yeah. He used to drive around Seville picking up stray dogs randomly. 
He used to carry big wads of cash in black bing bags. Um, and his business partner mysteriously disappeared in 1975. And there's no, there's been no explanation of that. He also sacked Stryker. Do you remember Angel Cuellar? Cuellar? Sacked him anyway for not trying. He said, you're sacked for not trying. Um, he was famous in 2001. He turned up, he heard that Betis players were having a Halloween party. And he turned up at where they were having the party to demand that they all leave. Loads of them escaped out of the back window. And then he publicly shamed all of them, leading Danielson to being booed and being accused by the fans of having no bollocks for going out on Halloween. He also once cut the power in his own stadium that he named after himself when Betis were 1-0 up against Real Madrid with 47 minutes left, causing the game to be abandoned and then hoping that he could keep the result. He wouldn't even let engineers in to fix it or anything. He was absolutely bonkers. We could get a couple of hours out of this Honest guy. Honest to we God. Yeah. Well, even more than that, he had a long-running, massive battle with the other psycho, who was uh, Del Nino, I think he was called. Jose Maria Del Nino, who owned Seville, who was equally as batshit as him. Del Nino, I think, had been Jesus Gill's lawyer. Jesus Gill, who owned... Remember the <laughs> oh, very yeah. dodgy guy who owned Atletico? Yeah. He was the mayor of Marbella. Yeah. It was all so dodgy. And it was Spanish football, man, in the 90s. Glorious. But that's how they afforded him because he basically spunked a load of his own money on him to make Betis, probably to piss Seville off and to make Betis a big, a big name again. Well, I think that's the thing with the Nilsson. He's become synonymous with, you know, hype and, you know, not, not delivering on it. But that said, he's played in two World Cup finals. Yeah. yeah. 63 caps for Brazil, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was a substitute in both. He played in the very, he came on in the last minute of the 2002 World Cup final. And just showboated for a, a whole of injury time, basically. Picked up his medal. And, um, I think went back to Betis and got relegated. And then started his, uh, you know, around-the-world journey. But I think he, he's... Uh, I hesitate to say unlucky, but there are few footballers more defined by their transfer fee than, than he was. True. And, and bearing in mind who was... Who was around him in in the hist- in the kind of progression of the world transfer record? He was preceded by Ronaldo, um, then it was Christian Vieri who took the record the next year. Then we then we went on to sort of Zidane and that sort of stuff. So he's a bit of an outlier in, in that respect. He was a completely un- untested Brazilian. Well, not completely untested, but he was he hadn't played at a high level. He he'd been awarded Player of the Tournament in the Confederations Cup. Um, so this wasn't exactly a player who deserved to have 21 and a half million spent on him, but that, that, that's, that's pretty much become his thing, but it's more than, it's more than just the fee. Um, uh, money runs kind of, kind of through this entire issue because we're talking about a, a, a kid who, who grew up in Sao Paulo, which is Brazil's biggest city. And he grew up in an incredibly poor family. And then, a few short years later, he was offered an 11-year contract uh, by Real Betis with a £260 million buyout clause. <laughs> um, Told you, Man- Manuel Luis de Lopera, bonkers. But yeah, go on, yeah, absolutely. And he was offered. He was also he was offered two million pounds a year for 11 years. And and he said he said um, I went to sleep thinking I was going to sign for Barcelona and I woke up and I signed for Betis, <laughs> and and he, he was perfectly honest about it and I think this presumably was the quote at the time he he just said I can't turn this down how on earth could uh, I possibly would, yeah. turn this down and and 
if from a, from a pure footballing perspective, he probably just thought, well, the worst case scenario here is that this is going to be a stepping stone to something even better. Um, it, either Betis will be great or I'll go and sign for Barcelona anyway. And uh, in the end, neither happened. And um, so, it, uh, but yeah, of course, it, uh, his career reached the inevitable um, conclusion of going on trial at Bolton, um, which... I was disappointed to find wasn't under Allardyce. It was actually under Gary Megson. So if, you, if, if how unlucky can a player get? You Megson didn't even get England. Allardyce. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, he um, was he was also dropped when in Dallas by manager Steve Morrow. Dropped by <laughs> Steve Morrow. <laughs> that way, Steve Morrow went. Yeah. Bloody hell! Amazing. For such a high flying sort of luxury player, he didn't half mix it with some real shite, didn't he? So, uh, his his Wikipedia page, as, as I cited earlier, um, so it begins with that already ominous tone, and then it ends with, in March 2017, Denilson signed with 888 Poker as a brand ambassador, <laughs> which is the saddest epitaph I've ever seen. Oh. However, you uh, sent a video, didn't you, Mike, earlier to me, and you haven't seen this, Adam, of his one game in Vietnam. Yeah, this is extraordinary. I mean, so... The Vietnamese League, I don't, I, it's remiss of me, I don't know what it's called, but uh, they made uh, Danielson the highest uh, paid player in its history. I think they gave him a £6.5 million contract for one season or it's something It's called like the that. V-League. The V-League. I'm just watching okay. his goal now as we... Yeah. As we as so that, that goal, actually, he scores a free kick, a really good free kick in the first two minutes of the game, and the stadium's packed <laughs> and everyone's going crazy. And then he never played for them again. And three weeks later, he left the club and then went to Greece. The amazing thing, in that same game, Leandro, playing for the same club, scores a cracking free kick as well. I mean, I mean the keepers doesn't look exactly top draw, it must be said. But even so, it is the, the, the free kick that he hits. He's a lovely one. Absolutely lovely. I'll put it up on the uh, Twitter page, for those of you who haven't yeah. seen it. Um, yeah, so there you go. Mr. Danielson, who... The strangest of football careers, really. Mm. And I've not seen him. I don't have anybody who plays 888poker.com, but I would be still hanging around there. I've got no idea. God knows what he does as a brand ambassador. So presumably encourages people to waste £21.5 million. Pounds Imagine how much money he can throw into a poker <laughs> pit, a pot, sorry. I don't play poker much. I don't know what the, I don't know the lingo. <laughs> I think he's, he's only 40, Danielson. I think I think he retired when he was 33 or something like that. Oh, so he's, he's, he's still quite a young guy. So. How old was he when he signed for Betis? He must have been pretty young then, wasn't he? I think he was signed 20, in 98. I think. So, yeah, yeah, coming yeah, up for, coming up for but, yeah, 21, 21. But he, he wouldn't have been a, you know, a complete gamble because, obviously, before him in, in Spain was Ronaldo, who was about 20 when he went to Barcelona. Romario had been great at Barcelona. Bebeto had done well at Deportivo. So, it's not like he was a complete shot in shot in the dark as a, as a, in a broad genre of footballer. It was just um, just uh, everything conspired against him and he didn't score for his first 18 games or something like that. So it, it didn't start well and, and therefore it wasn't going to end well either. Yeah, I think he might have suffered a little bit as well. I mean, he was, he was such a throwback winger. Yeah, right. He nail, was very nail, much nail, glued to the left, wasn't he? Yeah. Nailing his feet to the touchline, rolling me the ball and I'll take on the fullback, you know, in a kind of era when those kind of wingers were being phased out of the game, really. Yeah. So there you go. What are your memories of Danielson? Let us know at Ness and Dorma Pod. That brings us to the end of this little uh, romp through Glenn Hoddle and Danielson's career as well. Part of Glenn Hoddle's and most of Danielson's career. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Adam, for your time. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Mike, for your time. Thank you all of you for listening. I hope you've well. enjoyed it. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks. 
and we'll speak to you all soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.